Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Ever play Gwent? I do. And what's more, I usually win. How did I become the host? Hey everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic. This is Connor. I'm here with the Vesemir to my Geralt. That's a much uh, more fitting and uh, uh, praiseworthy uh, (laughs) analogy for us to bring in here. And we're revisiting the universe of Witcher. But this time, we've already done the show, and you know, there may be more content about the show, obviously, especially if it's the second season. We're going to revisit it. But this is about the game, Witcher 3, Wild Hunt, which it just so happens both Pete and I have been playing. And um, I think we've both become a little bit addicted. Isn't that right, Pete? Yeah, yeah. Well, there, when you start like weighing your sleep time versus game time, uh, that it's probably a sign that you're getting into it a little too deeply. And that's definitely what's happening. You know, I did exactly that last night to my detriment because <laughs> I, I decided game time was more important. But, uh, you know. So I'm going to ask you this. Um, how would you, bearing in mind we've discussed the show on here, how would you compare the game to the show? Well, um, a lot of the times what we focus on on this is things like uh, like narrative quality, that sort of thing. And really when you're comparing two completely different things like that, you're, you're, you're talking about the joy of the experience. That's the, the one real thing you can use as the thermometer. Based on that, I like Witcher 3 a lot more because like I get to do shit. It's one thing to sit there and wa- watch eight hours of an interesting world. And it's another thing to go out there and like stab a wyvern in the ass. <laughs> I think that reasoning is hard to argue with, and I think that the serious gamers listening to this, of whom I am certain there are a few, um, will be applauding to that line. Because, like, that, you know, I mean, there are lots of reasons why I tend to prefer video games to, certainly to TV, uh, if I had to pick at gunpoint between video games and movies, it'd be a little more complicated. I vastly prefer video games to TV. And I think you made an interesting point there, um just about the formal differences between the two. And I think that when we are deluged with screen media, uh, I had to throw social media into the mix there, sadly. Um, the, the the biggest advantage games, of course, have is that they are interactive at the level of narrative. Um, and that there's been a lot of theoretical work done about like the ways that that is, you know, how, how artificial is that? Like, does it, is there sort of a sliding spectrum of how interactive or how much of a sandbox games are, like, et cetera, et cetera. Without getting to that, it's just, like, there's there's an extent to which watching, like, watching these shows, especially these shows that so clearly bring in video game elements like Mandalorian and like Witcher, 
it almost does sort of feel like watching someone else's streaming, which is not what I'm into. A lot of gamers love doing that, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we focus so much when we talk about uh, about literature and, and genre fiction about a- agency and the individual choices. The thing here, you have the agency. I mean, it's a completely different level of interaction. And I know, I know, I'm not like uh, blowing anybody's mind here, but the the fact is, it's it's hard not to be more engaged as a player than you are as a reader. It, ah, okay. I'm gonna. I mean, I'm gonna challenge your language there because. Are you the the champion reader really saying that you're more quote unquote engaged playing video games? Yeah, because I choose. I mean, unless we're talking about what? Choose your own adventure books? I just I just think that a game, a good game is targeted at trying to make you have more skin in the game in the moment. I mean, I'm not saying that a game is better or worse than a book. I'm just saying that a game is naturally suited to to get your adrenaline pumping in a way that it's harder for a book to do. That is interesting. I'm be honest with you, Pete. I'm a little bit skeptical. I part of me feels like you might just be defending your initial take there, but <laughs> I, I get what you're saying. Like, I mean, the interactivity, like it, it probably. Um, you know, neuroscience is still very medieval, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But it probably does make different parts of your brain light up than, uh, you know, a novel does. Um, there's at least a different kind of rush of pleasure than from watching more static narrative media. I totally agree. I, I, when you say engage to me, that's like, like when you say, start using terms like that, that are a little bit more like broadly valorizing. Uh, I start, I start to wonder just because I know like for you, the, the core medium will always be books. And sure. So I love that's what I love about you, Pete. And in fact, I will say, you know, given that we've watched the show and enjoyed the show, and given that we played the game and enjoyed the game, and given that this began as a books podcast and we still do books, <laughs> uh, probably we will read the Witcher books at some point. At least try. Oh, we we've painted ourselves into a corner here. We have to. Yeah, and I, I would frankly love to. Like I, I, I would expect that uh, if we go in with the right expectations, and I think if you've watched the TV show and you've played the game, and here's where I'll make a Rather than contrasting them, I will simply compare them. If you sort of understand the uh, the swashbuckling, hammy tone of this world, it is it is both of those things. It is you know sort of it's very buccaneering, very happy go lucky, and I think Geralt always remains sort of the dashing corsair figure with uh, a little bit of a, a a dash of noir as well in him. If you accept that. And then you also accept that it's taking place within a grimdark world, which is a little bit of a contrast, but can be made to fit together if you accept one thing, which is that this is, I think if you contract this, you can contrast this to other grimdark. You can contrast it to Game of Thrones, for instance, and say Game of Thrones is, I would say, deeply American and uh, at least Anglo-American, but I'd say specifically American and very Puritan, very Calvinist, because it's all about sort of the the ways in which people are fated to sort of embody their worst selves in this horrible fallen world. Um, that might be more Catholic in some, some ways, but the point being like Game of Thrones <laughs> is deeply moralistic in sort of the most, the most traditionally Christian sense, because it's all about like, there's all of this gloss of narrative and character, but when you get right down to it, people end up becoming the thing they most fear or most hate. They become they become the darkest version of themselves. And everyone is sort of naturally pushed towards that. 
Witcher is not like that. It's a very dark and grim world, but it's grim for sort of it's grim for more prosaic reasons, which is that the peasants are always starving, right? There's the, there's these there's these big figures, both magical and otherwise, who have their agendas, who are starting wars, who are unleashing plagues, who are doing all kinds of things. And what we mostly are made aware of is that the vast majority of people are suffering because of this. They're being conscripted into the army. They're having their crops stolen. Whatever is happening, it's grim for most people most of the time. But this is not ultimately about how our, fa- our favorite characters don't always come to embody the worst version of themselves. Um, and it's, it's, it's much more of like a shrugging, well, that's the way it was. It's fatalistic because it's Eastern European. And I'm, I'm doing a little bit of stereotyping there, but I think that like if you're familiar with uh, Russian literature and Eastern European culture broadly, I think that certainly fits. There, there's, a, there's a broad and I would say prosaic rat- fatalism rather than sort of this fire and brimstone uh, sense of <laughs> post-Edenic doom hovering over things. Does that make sense, Pete? Yeah, yeah, it does. And, and I think um, in some ways the game has, is, I, I keep going back to this, but the, the game is better able to draw that out in some ways because that it doesn't need to explain the world in the same way. Like you, uh, I keep thinking about how early on there's a, there's a Nilfgaard officer who hires you to kill some monsters and in in by that point in the the show you've gone through a good 20 minutes of exposition explaining how shitty Nilfgaard is and here it's like okay well i'm i'm walking through a camp there's a bunch of dead bodies everywhere uh, and this guy's just going to walk up and pay and the fact is it doesn't in the game it doesn't really matter what an asshole his side is he's coming to you with a contract and that's the point of being a witcher and I, I, that that sort of fatalism, I thought uh, it it worked. It resonated for me in what we were doing here. Yeah, and also to be clear, a way that this does start to mirror Game of Thrones or Grim Dark is like Nilfgaard initially is framed as uh, a baddie, and you can choose to perceive them that way. And then you're made intimately aware that their main antagonist, the Redanians, are easily just as bad in slightly different ways. Um, so like there's, you know, you're not, if you're looking to sort of centers of power and authority for your dose of good, if you're looking for a Tolkienian good guy, which like, I feel like it's funny because George R. R. Martin was so preoccupied with dethroning Tolkien and it's like, man, since he started that project over the last like 25 to 30 years, everyone has decided I'm going to write fantasy. Unlike Tolkien, there's not going to be any good guys. Like that's yeah. become the... It would almost be a bolder move now to just be like, you know what? I'm going to try to write an interesting, purely good faction in my in my high fantasy. Um, but this is not trying to do that. And the the good the good comes very much from sort of these wry, uh, you know, sardonic but ultimately good hearted individuals, uh, Geralt himself and others that he encounters. And to be clear, Geralt is given constant choices in this game that are. Um, you know, he can make choices that are a little bit morally tilted one way or another, and often the, the, the results will be more complex than he intended, which is one of the very best things about this game. And to, and to paint a picture yeah. for people who haven't played it, if you haven't played it, go play it. Um, I'm certainly not going to spoil too much of it for you because I haven't made it that far. I'm going to ask Pete to spoil too much for me, but I'm only on level 11, and um, I'm dinking around in Novigrad in the main quest, and I've done some Witcher contracts. But I think, to paint a picture for people, this is a very, very large open world. And you're made to feel the largeness because you have to spend a lot of time 
galloping across it or walking across it through just like vast fields and woods. And you're constantly passing through these these shitty little villages full of starving peasants who are always complaining at you. Um, and you'll often stumble upon significant things, but often you won't. You'll just go and go and go. And the map is incredibly vast. There's just a ton going on. And while the map itself is on the surface, like it's the map, like uh, the surface of things is like less engaging than like Bethesda games, because what could be as interactive as a Bethesda map where like you can steal every single cup, all the tens of thousands of cups <laughs> on the map. And this is not quite that. But but what is interesting about it and what what takes it, what sets it apart from Bethesda, for instance, is uh most of the quests uh, are very, they're all lovingly rendered in their own way. And even seemingly minor quests will break out into really interesting cutscenes and have a lot of development of the antagonist and the backstory of what happened. And there's always twists and turns, often even on the smallest quests. And it's just all like at the level of sort of building out a massive tapestry from tiny, from seemingly tiny quests and sort of working outward from that and then weaving it all together. This game is unlike anything I've played. Um, it's just I, this. Yeah, go ahead. I, I want to bitch about some of this, actually. Uh, so <laughs> uh, one of the things I found is like Bethesda style. Sometimes I like wandering through the woods, right? Just seeing what's there. And I'll go to a hut and they'll be like, I don't know, a grave hag or a werewolf or whatever there. Like, basically, I blunder into a quest and I come at it from the wrong direction because what I'm supposed to do is go out to some billboard, go talk to the guy, gather the appropriate herbs, blah, 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 blah. But instead, it's like, oh, hey, here's a monster. And I kill it. And instantly in my uh, in, in my quest log, it says, congratulations, you killed so-and-so, go here for your reward. Well, how the fuck do I know that? <laughs> okay, I have never had that experience, and in fact, I was under the impression that most of the significant boss fights in, in monster contracts don't, like, I, I wasn't aware that a lot of these monsters even appeared until you took the contract, if they're more significant ones. So that that is an interesting thing for me to hear, because I have not had that experience, actually. Okay. Yeah, it's it's happened to me a couple of times. Uh, another thing that's happened, and I'm telling you this as a like uh, your your level 18 to your your level 11 friend in this game. All right, buddy. Uh, if you have any sort of quest in your log right now that says show this item to this person to get more information, do that shit early. Because if somebody disappears and you're holding one of those, you are screwed. It's never going to go anywhere. Thanks for the tip. Yeah, I mean, one of the really interesting things, and again, this fits with the fatalism. I think that I think that they built the fatalism deeply into the game mechanics. Is that you are constantly making choices that could resonate far down the line. Um, and as you said, people will disappear. Things will become missable. You'll make choices that you won't understand the consequences of until much, much later in a very tangible and sometimes harmful way. So it's not just it's not just this gloss over your narrative experience, it really is like tangible gameplay will be affected by the outcome of these decisions that you couldn't have known the consequences of, which, you know, tends to mirror, Hey, real life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like there's, this is an interesting game because on the one hand, there's a, there's a fair amount of linearity. Like there's more linearity to this than like Skyrim. I mean, everything is more linear than like the Bethesda sandboxes in, in some ways, every single player game almost is um, just because like, this game wants to push you towards its wonderful collection of, of carefully developed cutscenes and stuff like they're very proud of that. So there's a, there's a lot of funneling that goes on. 
But that being said, like the linearity exists there to guide you, but also to, to fuck with you. Like this game constantly put, plays tricks on you. Um, it loves to do that. Like you can't save. like the inability to save during a dialogue because it wants you to have to make decisions in the moment in dialogue, sometimes on a timer um, is like that is just the, the, the game is just trolling you. The game is like <laughs> the game. Yes. is test- Yeah, the game is testing how much um, tolerance you have for being sort of toyed with by this cruel like the world is cruel but to be clear it's also darkly comical and it's sort of laughing at you like a shakespearean fool so it's not just not everything is just the grim dark oh this is terrible it, it really often is like <laughs> playing tricks on you it's a trickster god yeah one of the things i find very interesting about it is um you're not like when you're playing fallout or you're playing oblivion or skyrim or whatever you're playing on some level, there is an unspoken assumption that you are supposed to be the saint of the game. Like you're going through to do things for people. And if you have an option of demanding money up front or go doing it because you're a nice person, the reward for being a nice person is always better than the money you could get by demanding it and being an asshole. And The Witcher is not like that at all. Like every time you take out a quest, one of your options is to haggle and say, pay me more money before I solve this. You realize this witch is going to kill you and your family. And if you don't make those negotiations, you're leaving money on the table. You're a sucker. And that's unique. Yeah, it's fascinating. And like you said, like certainly Geralt has the option, especially in the main quest, to like, to, to make what are clearly moral choices. Now, again, they may be choices in which both outcomes carry both good and bad, but like there is, that is, you know, sort of baked into character development, but on the side, and to be clear, the side in this game is not like we can get into Gwent. We're going to have to talk about Gwent, but like, even oh, leaving I'm Gwent, looking forward to this. <laughs> yeah. Even leaving Gwent aside, like when I say side quests, like the monster contracts are very core to Geralt's identity. If you haven't, if you're not familiar with who Geralt is, he's, you know, one of the last witchers, a mutated monster hunter, and he's made his living his whole life from taking money for killing monsters. And the game understands the importance of that and creates a lot of very substantive contracts we take at different levels. And often they're actually quite hard for your level, at least on ordinary difficulty or above. Um, like I am, you know, I, I was at level 11 doing a level 10 contract last night and I'm going to put it aside for a few levels because it's just annoyingly hard. Um, so yeah, I mean, the one thing is that like the combat here is my main points of comparison for like vast open worlds are Bethesda games. And obviously the com- I mean, the combat is all in most games is like more complicated than Bethesda to be clear. But like, I do think it's interesting also that um, comparing this to other open worlds, I mean, the trend in AAA single player games is toward open worlds. It almost feels like, uh, you know, developers feel like they've failed in some way if their world isn't open enough and doesn't have enough for you to explore. Um, so even games like uh, God, I mean, I, I don't play that many games, but even games like God of War, for instance, or um, Wolfenstein 2, which are very, in many ways, very linear and kind of guide you through what they exactly what they want to do. They still they still take care to give you a lot of open expanse to roam around and to choose what you want to do with. Um but Witcher, like, again, Witcher takes that to, like, 
uh, different heights, shall we say, than anything. The only the only comparable games that I've experienced uh, in recent generations are are Bethesda. I mean, Pete, you you've played more games than me over the years. Like, what do you? How do you compare this to other open worlds? Uh, well, I th- I think you're right in that the world is absurdly wide open. It 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 has aspects of similarities to some less open world games too that always sort of catches my eye. Like, um, what's a good uh? There there's a lot of of crafting opportunities, and the things you craft are always going to be vastly superior to anything you uh you find in a store, and so that that moves a little more uh. Well, I guess there's aspects to that in in Skyrim now that I think about it. The the other thing I think of is Pazak, which is in Kodor. It is very difficult to advance without mastering this weird-ass little card game. And they definitely took that and ran with it. I mean, like, you could you could spend as much time playing Gwent in this as you do playing the regular aspects of the game. And honestly, I think that's why I'm level 18 and you're level 11 is because you're grinding the card game and I'm, I'm grinding monsters. Yeah. I'll be real with you. I spent probably 12 to 15 hours over the last week just playing Gwent. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love Gwent. Like I, you know, I'm sure we also have some serious gamers of, non-video game gamers listening to this, folks who play Magic the Gathering, uh, people who like various sort of non-trading card and board games. Um, And I have not played Magic the Gathering in a very long time. I think that I have, deep in my DNA, like the right kind of personality to get really into that kind of thing. Um, As Pete knows, though, I live a very itinerant and minimalist life. And like, you know, having like like sort of acquiring and playing with magic cards all the time is just not something that can fit into my life the way that I constitute I, it. Yeah, I have this image of you wandering the country with a worn walking stick and a and a leather backpack, and in the leather backpack is a sealed plastic bag full of magic cards and a few changes of underwear, and that's it. Like I can <laughs> totally visualize that. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> When I did used to play those card games, I mean, going all the way back to the first generation of Pokemon cards when I was, like, 10 years old, like, there was a period when I had a really good deck for Pokemon and played in the local league, and I think that, did I ever, was I ever actually the best player in my hometown? I was close to it. Like, I had a very strong, uh, I was, believe it was Fire and Grass type deck. Point being, that I really do like this kind of play. <laughs> and in recent years, I've really, when I had the opportunity to play, like, uh, like deck building board games where you don't collect the cards, but they just come uh, in a box set and everyone builds their deck through the course of the game, are really big now. I think partly because they give everyone a chance to nerd out like you're a magic player without having to, you know, have the stigma of going and buying packs of magic cards. Um, and, yeah. you know, like Dominion is a great example of this. And I've really, really enjoyed playing Dominion and things like that when I've got a chance to. And Gwent, I will say, if it were a game that existed in the real world, would be a first-rate uh, deck-building game. Like, it is a genuinely yeah. strong game. I think that I've sort of figured out how the AI in this video game works. And so we'll see if they... We'll see once I get to the highest level players, if like it's a little bit more challenging, but I think that I understand how the computer does it. But I, I have to say like Gwent is just a typical, like, you know, building up points on the board, different methods across a few turns, kind of playing a chess match with your opponent, trying to get them to put stuff out of the board earlier, that kind of thing game. I think it rules. I mean, what do you think about Gwent Pete? 
<laughs> I've been waiting for this moment. Uh, you know, I went through the tutorial and I went, you know, this is not why I'm here. And I've sidestepped the son of a bitch the whole way. Like, I am, I am here to murder monsters, my friend. Pete, I, man, <laughs> I, am so, I am so disappointed in you. Wow. <laughs> Oh, I'm just fascinated by it because you like you you have you have bought into all the nooks and crannies of this game. Like where I'm spending my time is like I'm doing all the treasure hunts and I'm gathering up weird leathers and crap so I can make every type of armor and like I'm trying to do every quest and explore everything on the map. But like I'm not playing cards with these people. These people aren't my friends. <laughs> Come on, man. Zoltan Chauvet is your friend. Like, you got <laughs> a lot of these people are your friends. And also, like, regardless of whether your friends or not, like, there is something, I don't know. I really enjoy building up my different decks because there's different factions that you can use. I, I so enjoy getting new cards, learning to play the different factions. Because, like, for instance, if you're playing Scoia'tael, which is like the elf and dwarf gorilla alliance, like, with Scoia'tael, you want to jump early and try to win the first of the three rounds. That's what I always do with my... Because partly because my deck is weaker than my Northern Realms or my Nilfgaardian deck. But, like, it's really... It's a great faction just, like, jump in early and then revive some of those players later on. Whereas if you're playing Northern Realms, which is the first faction you get, like, you usually want to throw that first round of three and then set a trap for your opponent as the game moves on and uh, often hit them with a lot of siege weapons at the end. Point being, there's a lot to learn. And... As you beat people throughout the game world, you get new cards, and, like, they did a great job building this in. And here's Pete running around, like, gathering pieces of armor like a dork, like you're playing Skyrim <laughs> or some lesser game. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's I, – I have real questions about the weight requirements of the game because, like, it gets really bad if I pick up one extra hatchet or arrow, but I have, like – four million potions and oils like it's impossible for me to be carrying all this shit it's just when it's armor they get picky well girl is a magical creature <laughs> all right come on man the other program so you're saying that you okay so this this is interesting we can talk game strategy a little bit i think maybe one of my problems is that i have not done enough searching to improve my gear like i have upgraded my swords a little bit I probably desperately need better armor because when I'm doing like if I'm level 11, I'm doing a level 10 mission and I'm getting killed in like four hits by the monster. That probably yeah. indicates I need better armor more than anything. I, I, and I mean, I recommend it. Like if you go in and, and uh, check like the treasure hunt section of your quest and look around for an appropriately leveled set of equipment, like just go out and find it and build it, man. It's it's a game changer. I will take that to heart. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to. And yeah. you know what? I'll 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 try Gwent. Like next time we talk, I'll I'll, I'll come back with an after action report on a couple of card games. All right. Here's the here's the thing though. Are you saying you're level eighteen and you haven't built your deck up at all? That is correct. Okay. Then for you to get into Gwent now, like if you were to play the people that you are meeting at level eighteen, uh, you're just gonna get annihilated. So you you'll have to uh, if you want to play Gwent, you're gonna have to do some research and find out where to get some decent cards for at least one of your decks before you before you try to just jump jump in. <laughs> Fair enough. Well I can always just like like every st shop I go to I buy the damn cards. That's one thing. It's like I've got a lot more money because I haven't been playing. <laughs> but buying but again it's like buying is one thing, but truly how you get a good Gwent deck is you have to do the Gwent side quests and beat the best players. That's how you get the good cards. Sorry to, okay. sorry to break this to you, but... Oh, no, no, that's all right. It it definitely takes at least a few hours of playing Gwent to uh, 
get a decent deck going. Um, and I've got three decent decks. I don't have a good monster deck yet. I think there's another faction that gets added in later or something. But uh, anyway, I think it's a blast. I, I mean, okay, moving on. You said that these people are not your friends. And, you know, that's that's partially true. I mean, Geralt, there was a lot of people who are not someone he'd want to be friends with. He also has a lot of friends that pop up in this game, which is one one another reason this isn't quite as grimdark as it could be, is that, like, it this this narrative universe does not want to kill off everybody that Geralt loves. Yeah, um, yeah there, a grimdark universe does not have Dandelion in it. Fact. Well, yeah, so Dandelion being the sort of frame narrative of all of this is really interesting, but also just, like, the number of friends that he's had that he's clearly had for, like, I guess all three of the games, um, friends and lovers, I should say, is is interesting. And I, given the sort of the cruelty of this world, I would have expected more than to be killed off. But um, it's thus far, there is a lot of people cropping back up. Uh, but who's your favorite character? Huh. Um, let me think about that. Uh... Uh, the, probably the redheaded sorceress in Novigrad, whose name escapes me at the second, but I do have Google next to me. Uh, so let, let it be known for the record that Pete's favorite character is Triss Marigold. There we go. Who is, uh, extremely, you know, gorgeous and sassy, uh, badass sorceress. Um, yeah, but yeah. that describes every sorceress in the game. Man. I mean, true, but like, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna roast you a little bit for making Triss your favorite character because, like, I think that we're we're made to understand that coming into this, like, the last significant romantic affair Geralt had was with Triss, and that's why Yennefer is mad at him because you know Geralt is like one of his traits is that he's the, a wry sort of Raymond Chandlerian uh, character who all women just adore clearly. Um, <laughs> certainly, certainly all women with magic powers. Yeah. Sorceresses love Geralt. I don't know about, about, you know, mere mortals, but, uh, uh, and, and yet I will say, I will say that like, uh, like the game, <laughs> I mean, to get into the horniness of this game more deeply, that's, I'm not going to do that right now, actually, but like it is, th- this is sort of like unapologetically, uh, heterosexually horny game. And, um, that is probably one of its like most throwback to like 40, 50, 60 years ago high fantasy versus like our current era of Rye Grimdark. But uh, anyway, I'm going to tease Pete for making Tristan's fair character, although I, I admit she is a good character. I will say that I find her voice acting a little bit annoying. Um, you know, I like I, for whatever reason, that voice actress just sounds like uh, a very arrogant rich american person to me but that could just be <laughs> my deep biases coming out um you know something i have noticed about the voice acting in this game is that there are moments where gerald clearly has a different voice in the middle of a discussion so like he'll have two paragraphs as the the gerald i'm used to there'll be one or two sentences that were clearly dropped in with a different voice actor and then he keeps going and the idea that i'm not supposed to notice this is insane to me well i think that like I'm sure that the developers regret this. I assume that it just grows out of the fact that, like, they layered in all of these DLCs. I think Gwent was actually DLC initially. Like, I don't think Gwent shipped with uh, the original version of this game. And, like, then, for instance, you're layering um, all of these Gwent players into the into the aspects of the game that are not just expansion, that are already there. Like, every version suddenly plays Gwent. And things, it's not just that. I think there's all these things that have had to be sort of layered in, gone back over time. And 
one of the casualties of that will be consistency in voice acting. So I look at that as sort of just an artifact of how ambitious this game is, counterintuitively. Interesting. Yeah, it's... I will say that uh, if you build something like this over time, like things can happen to your voice recording. Like, I mean, it's entirely possible that the voice actor died. I don't know. And what are you supposed to do then? And you certainly you certainly can't kidnap them to come back if they don't want to come back. There you go. Well, so I'm I'm going to jump back though to favorite characters and say I'm on level 11. So there's a lot of this game that I have not seen yet. And sure, there's a good chance that I will meet my favorite character later on in this game. I'm a little bit disappointed because my favorite character in the show is Yennefer, and she has not featured much yet. I hope she will more later on, um, but mm-hmm. she's much thinner in the game than in the show uh, thus far anyway. Um, Have you met the heads of the underworld yet? I've only met the king of the, the king of beggars so far, and he's, you know, he's interesting. I think that my favorites thus far in my limited exposure are I do like Zoltan Chevet. You're meant to like him. You know, he's a charming, gruff, sort of dwarven badass. Oh, in I've, met, I've met that dude a couple of times at a bar. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, for sure. And then I also, to be honest, I, I like the Bloody Baron because he's an, you know, he's a drunken lout who abuses his family. Uh, also has a lot of sort of warmth and his particular kind of gruff outlaw empathy um in him and is filled with regret despite being you know a terrible person in a lot of ways and the sort of warlord despot of Velen. i just thought he was an interesting portrait of the sort of like uh you know drunk megalomaniacal uh sentimentality and he's exactly he's exactly the kind of person that to me is fitted to this world as it's being realized because his sort of attitude is like well this world is in chaos the peasants are starving I can step into the breach with like, the, you know, just sort of the massive size of my personality uh, and, you know, sort of like my swashbuckling will to get things done and, and bring some sort of coherency to this world. And things are his effort to cohere things is always falling apart at the level of his own family, even as he's the only person who is able to sort of bring the roughest approximation of order to Velen, which is the swampy no man's land that no army can control and is also completely it's also starving to death he's yeah the, and both both the redanians and the Nilfgaardians have sort of ceded this territory to him he is working with Nilfgaard, but it's like you know neither of them really wants to try to, to garrison and hold all of ellen um and again it, it's fitting because he is objectively we would say a bad person who's done bad many bad things at the, at the level of the personal and the political um but he, he his charm and his sort of sense of honor and his desire to make things right in a world where not only can no one make things fully right, but certainly certainly this kind of person who's also the domineering warlord can't make a lot of things right despite his best efforts. I just find that very interesting. I one of the things I, I noticed is like when you were talking to some of his guards at one point, I got the sense that he was that they were in the process of doing a rebellion about against him and it never went anywhere and i'm always going to wonder whether it's is that because of choices that i made or is that just a check they started writing but never cashed like i don't know interesting we could, i'm sure we could look that up fairly easily but like for instance at one point he's he capriciously sets his own stables on fire because he's drunk and angry and despairing and i mean you probably chose to save the stable hand right 
Um, yeah, well, actually, I was just I was on a phone call. And so I didn't answer in time. And so I didn't say I would rescue. But then I went in and rescued him anyway. I'm just like, screw it. I don't need to have an agreement. So I got <laughs> Right. And I'm wondering if like doing things like that might prevent their, him from being overthrown. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, Witcher is a game where like you always keep that in your head. I'm sure we could look it up very easily. But like you're always you, you always feel the sense of purpose looming behind those seemingly minor uh, side choices, which is, again, one of the great things about the game is you're always being knocked off balance by uh, by these little twists that will ask you to make what might well be very significant choices. Um, on that note, thus far, that's spoiling too much for me. This might make it hard for you. Uh, OK, what's your favorite quest? Oh, um, uh, the Hattori Hanzo. Uh, I have not done Hattori yet, but I have met him, so I have a sense okay. of where it's going. So don't don't spoil the details for me. But it, he's a, he seems like an interesting character. Yeah, there's also there's also sort of a, a CSI uh, a CSI Novograd quest that I sort of dig, where you're you're solving a murder mystery and chasing down a killer. Cool. I look forward to doing both of those. I haven't gotten there yet. I will say those are both Novograd quests. I have to say I find Novograd really really interesting um, because. One thing this game understands very well, like, it's not just that there's a lot. There are all kinds of tensions in this world. There's the war between Redania and Nelfgaard. There's the former Temeria that's been deposed and exists as sort of a guerrilla movement. There's the Skoyatel, who are the dwarven, elvish, and halfling guerrillas that are still lurking around. There's the Church of the Eternal Flame, which is trying to stamp out all magic users and is constantly burning sorceresses and alchemists and all that stuff. Um... I could go on down the list, but like it's not just that it layers like most high fantasy worlds and most games. It doesn't just layer in all of this conflict to propel the story forward and create fights for you to have. It also sort of understands at a deep level, like, okay, how are people how are people actually gonna maneuver for, for position in the city? Well, um, they're going to try to screw people out of what they have on the basis of accusing them of being magic users or pointing out they're non-humans. So like you have you meet elves and dwarves who are being pushed out and you know, essentially being ethnically cleansed by humans. And that influences things you have to do. Like you said, like the Hattori, uh, is it this Hattori Smith quest who is a yeah. elf or, you know, you meet dwarven bankers and it's like, there's like this, the sense of maneuvering that underlies all of this is sort of rooted very, very much rooted historically in the way that people would take, the way people actually do take advantage of the chaos of wartime and political strife is you know, often by screwing over their neighbors. <laughs> The the other thing that this game is is uh, deeply rooted in is uh, Quentin Tarantino. Well, you mentioned the Hattori Hanzo reference. What, what else do you yes. think of? Oh well, I I mean I, I joked about it with you back at the time. Like when you're in the bloody uh, Baron's uh, castle and you go to the bottom, there's a couple of guys talking about getting the gimp out. Yes, and there's a directly lifted dialogue of bring out the gimp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I just like the. I, I'm I'm very interested that those are the Easter eggs they've decided to drop, you know? Well, there is, I mean, the Tarantino tone, right, which is certainly one that pushes people towards <laughs> uh, moral ambiguity at the very least, pushes them towards violence that is often at best morally iffy, um, but also, like, embraces this sort of reveling and wryness and, you know, the, the, the Shakespearean fool dancing and laughing at everyone like that tone is very much the tone of Witcher. So for all the ways that this is not a Tarantino story, like I think that just sort of like tonally and in various 
sort of dipping in aesthetically. Yeah, like it makes a lot of sense for this to be drawing on the Tarantino well. Um, dun dun dun. What is your? You may have already said it, but what is your least favorite aspect of this game? Oh, let me think about it. Uh, well, I I find I find the 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 bugs to be a, a major distraction. Things about like how those quests work, and um, like everybody fights the same way. So you you de- you develop a gimmick for for stabbing a person, and that's all you ever need to do going forward. Well, I mean, yeah, human enemies are pretty easy in this game. But I will say the, the monsters bring some different things to the table. Yeah, thank God. Yeah, that, and that's very true. I would say, like the the the, com- the combat. If I wanted to get snarky about it, or or the 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 quest uh, brokenness kind of bugs me. But um, overall, uh, I'm I'm pretty happy with what I see. How about you? Yeah, I think my least favorite aspect is just its approach to leveling and difficulty. Like I find it. This will be controversial. A lot of people um, really don't like, for instance, the way that Skyrim or Fallout, the way that Bethesda levels enemies so that you're always going to be more or less the equal of whatever you run into with rare exceptions. Mm -hmm. And I agree that that can be done in a way that's too extreme. Um, You know, I kind of like I will say that the best balance I've seen in a fairly open world is my very favorite game, which is Horizon Zero Dawn, where like you kind of have a sense where it's like, all right, these little machines are going to be easy to kill. These somewhat bigger ones are going to be harder. And that giant metallic Tyrannosaurus Rex with all of the cannons and missiles on its back, you probably shouldn't attack that just yet. (laughs) Um, Like there's sort of like a very obvious like hierarchy of difficulty um, that allows you to sort of, that allows you to orient yourself in that world. And in Witcher, I think that I what I really hate is sort of like stumbling the game again. The game wants to wrong foot you and knock you off balance constantly. And that's often a lot of fun. It also becomes annoying when it's like, okay, here's a Necker, which is just a little goblin, basically. And here's one among this pack that is like twice as leveled as you are. It has a skull over, which means certain death. And you just ran into that in the course of this quest. And it's just going to mess everything up. Or you gallop into town and it's there. And it's like, why is this one stupid little goblin like gonna kill me like that is that doesn't make as much sense as like looking into this and it's like oh there's a giant dragon over there at the distance well i'm not gonna go over there yet it's <laughs> yeah. like uh, that aspect of this game like when it when it really messes with you like you just stumble into some knocky situation and there's some really deadly monster or 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 a case where like you feel like the leveling of the the quest is way lower than it should be or way higher sometimes um it the took game, me yeah. for it took me forever to figure out I could fire a crossbow underwater. Like I, I was every every time I dealt with a water scenario, I was just having to run from everything because I couldn't figure out what to do in combat. Yeah, so there are like there are just frustrating aspects of the game that I think like the game will sort of leave you to figure out in a way that is just non obvious and counterintuitive and annoying. But I mean, I think this is honestly a masterpiece of a game. Many have said it. I mean, I think it's considered one of the best. Uh, single player games of this century thus far. Widely. Did you just say many people are saying this? <laughs> more and more people are saying that Witcher 3 is one of the greatest <laughs> games ever. But I mean, truly, this game like had you know pretty much universal acclaim when it came out. Um, yes. The people, the only people who don't seem to like it categorically are people who step into people that some people just jump into a vast open world and are like, there's too much going on here. This is annoying. I don't want to do all the side quests. I don't want to play Gwent. <laughs> and uh, 
Wow. I, I've talked to some of those people who have really not enjoyed this game. Um, but other than, you know, so like if you if you don't like sprawling open worlds that are like one thing about Witcher is like more than almost any more than any single player game I've played. Like Skyrim is designed, for instance, such that you could easily get 250 good hours out of it um, if you want to. Or you could just get 50 hours out of it and still have done quite a lot. Whereas I think Witcher like really, really wants you to put in like well over 100 hours like Witcher very much wants to push you in the direction of like, no, 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 no. You're going to spend you're going to put in the hours in this game. And if if you like that, you like this game. And it rewards it. Absolutely. I mean, there are things to do for that much time. Yeah, totally. And I'm looking forward to doing the expansions, which neither of us have gotten to yet, which are like for for higher level characters Um, supposed to be great. Uh, I am, I am so, I'm, I'm so curious. We might have to do a check-in episode, like, in a month or so. Uh, yeah. Once we're, once we're, you know, higher level characters and just see, see what's going on. Because I think this is a, a fruitful uh, vein to mine. Also, at some point, we definitely need to read at least one Witcher book. At least try to. Yeah, I'll do some research on what a good one would be. And honestly, part of that research will just be logging into the Discord and they will all shout book names at us. And that's okay. <laughs> yeah, if you, yeah, uh, this is an important, important thing for people to hear. If you are not a patron yet um, and you want to shout book recommendations at us or just shout anything at us in general, uh, join the, pa- yeah, become a patron and you can get on the Discord and it is a fun, lively time. Also, before we before we log off here, I want to briefly say something. Um, the like Coke brother, I think it, I believe it's Coke funded or funded by you know some other right wing ghouls, like Foundation for Economic Freedom or whatever. It's economic something. I don't even. Oh, know. are they sponsoring us now? <laughs> Shout out to our sponsors, the Coke funded ghouls. Uh, I mean, hey, I, you know, if, if they want to, let's talk. But no, no, no. Um, they, they did a tweet the other day that kind of went, went uh, negatively viral yesterday because it said, it's talking about California's freelancer laws, uh, trying to tighten up on the way that the gig economy is regulated. And I think generally, I haven't looked into those laws, but I think generally they're pointing in the right direction, which is like clearly gig workers like Uber are getting screwed. So we need to do something about this. And of course, this, you know, right wing think tank propaganda outfit, whatever they are, uh, was they, they did a tweet where they were like, cost a coin to your Witcher because, uh, you know, under this new law in California, Witcher and Mandal- characters like Witcher and Mandalorian might be able to earn a living. And I, I want to go back to this because when we discussed Witcher and Mandalorian recently, we talked a lot about them as sort of this fantasy of the autonomous freelancer, you know, in these chaotic and broken worlds. And there's truth to that, but I think that, that as I and many others pointed out, both Mandalorian and Geralt are in organized guilds, whether it's the Bounty Hunters Guild or the Witchers. And so what I think is so hilarious to me is, of course, that tweet was wrong in so many different levels. But, like, even in our most intensive fantasies of what it means to be an autonomous, atomized, disconnected freelance operator in, like, a fallen world, even in those fantasies, these guys had it better than actual gig workers. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> like you just can't make it up. Like they, they, these incredible, you know, oh God, like like they have more protection and more organization than the average Uber driver. It's it's like it actually makes your head spin to think about. But yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's one of the weird things about talking about grimdark is we're in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good place for us to sign off. As my, my co-host just said, we live in a grimdark society. There we go. That's a take, folks. <laughs> <laughs>
Alright, thanks everyone, and uh, remember, toss a coin to your Witcher. Bye guys.